repairing decades, generations of bad blood uh, or some, some negative connotation with, with a larger bank. This is a vital, vital role that CDFIs are playing in their communities all over the country. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are sponsored by MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, Build America Mutual, and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, intrepid public finance expert, chicken connoisseur, baseball mom, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And uh, I don't know about where you are in uh, in Chicago, but uh, the gross mid-Atlantic summer has definitely hit. <laughs> I cannot go outside without just, I start sweating like right away. <laughs> I'm not even doing anything. So it's, it's real lovely here this time of year. <laughs> we were talking in the last episode about living in DC and in greater DC. And I I will admit, I think probably like a lot of people who either interned or spent a brief amount of time there, especially in the summer, like that's the main thing that they remember was just, (laughs) uh, just being, just walking outside and being drenched and Mm. nothing you can do about it. You just got to kind of deal with it. Uh, Yeah. We've, we've had some humidity here, but nothing, nothing quite like that. That's a a whole different, whole different kind of humidity. So Liz, on the public money pod, we, we talk often, about state and local finance and infrastructure, and particularly as of late, a lot of infrastructure issues surrounding uh, climate adaptation and clean energy and lots of infrastructure that really we tend to think of as sort of concentrated in very populated areas, very densely populated areas in particular. Uh, but it turns out you know, there's this whole world of public finance that is in both those more concentrated, populated urban areas, but also reaching out into rural communities. And we, we don't maybe spend as much time talking about that part of the world of public finance, in part because it tends to be delivered by maybe slightly different kinds of organizations and institutions, uh, maybe outside of a city government or outside of a county government, but instead leaning on, uh, for instance, community development finance institutions or nonprofits or faith-based organizations or whatever it might be. Uh, They're an important part of the tapestry of state and local public finance. And we're fortunate today to have an opportunity to talk to Mitchell Smith, who was the Director of Government and External Affairs at the Community, I'm sorry, at the Council of Development Finance Agencies, the organization that is kind of a trade association for community development finance institutions, which are, again, one of those or- those types of organizations that plays a really important role in providing capital to all sorts of investments in communities all over the country, but in particular in rural areas. So we're pleased to have an opportunity to, to speak to, to him about that. Lots going on in this space, particularly when we talk about clean energy, greenhouse gas emissions, infrastructure investment, economic and community development. Liz, when you think about those issues, particularly as it relates to the goings on in rural areas, you certainly have experience with this, both in your professional and your personal life. Uh, right. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's I. I um, there's there's an interesting thing going on in the uh, agricultural industry that I had no clue was really happening until until we moved out to this part of Maryland. And and you're right. I, I mean, when you think about investment and startup and 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 even in terms of greenhouse gas reduction. I mean, a lot of those those phrases 
in most people's mind, you, you think of urban environments, but rural communities have just as much and maybe sometimes even a bigger role to play in, in those in those areas. Um, farms can, there's, I, I've heard of programs where um, farms can give out carbon, can do carbon credits and, and receive funding that way. Um, one of the things I didn't really know about before until I kind of became more familiar with the farming industry in general was how expensive it is to break into it. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, at least around here, there's a lot of um, either fifth, sixth generation family farmers or a lot of young people who uh, who are trying to break in, who just broke into it and have like a very, very small kind of, uh, you know, we do a little bit of everything. We go to the farmer's markets, um, but they have to all have another job on the on the side that actually earns them money, uh, which is true for a lot of farms. Um, one person does the farming, the other person earns the money. But uh, so you have either those those young people who are breaking into it or people who are retired and that's, that's what they're doing with their retirement money. But it, there's a lot of capital that you need. I mean, a good a tractor is hundreds of thousands of dollars and all the equipment that goes with it. And so, you know, not to even to speak of the, the cost of land and everything else. And so um, it's, I think maybe a lot of people and, and me included, I grew up in the suburbs and I thought of farming as this like idyllic, you know, cows, pastures, <laughs> dairy farm silos. And, and it does look like that when you're driving by, but the actual work of it and, and getting into it is requires a ton of money you don't actually make a lot of money um, if you're a, on, unless you're a mega farm, and um, it just it requires a lot of love and dedication, and and that's and that's our nation's food source as well, and especially with the growing popularity of regional food sourcing, it's even more vital that we have access to that farmers have access to to capital to continue to provide, and it's just a whole area of of public finance that just honestly didn't occur to me until not too long ago. <laughs> Absolutely. And clearly has always been important and is getting a lot more visibility now, particularly in the aftermath of uh, all the new federal money that's flowing into that space, a lot of new state support flowing into that space. And just as you were saying, a lot more, I think, awareness of of those issues, especially around supply chain concerns and mm -hmm. food supply concerns. Uh, so it is an interesting and exciting time to be working in that space. And uh, again, we're really Lucky to be able to get some more expertise on that particular corner of the world of state and local public finance. Well, we're pleased to welcome to the podcast Mitchell Smith, who is the Director of Government and External Affairs for the Council of Development Finance Agencies. Mitchell, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here to, to talk about uh, public money. Mitchell, welcome. Um, the CDFA is uh, something that I'm sure a lot of folks in public finance are aware of, but the, the larger audience of, of state and local government stakeholders might not know too much about it. So can you kind of start off by explaining what our, what, what the CDF, how the CDFA fits into the, the CDFI landscape and maybe, uh, maybe give us some shorthand for those acronyms too. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. The hashtag stop the acronym. <laughs> The Council of Development Finance Agencies, it's much easier to say CDFA, uh, but that's what we are. We're the Council of Development Finance Agencies. Uh, we were formed in the uh, early 1980s when President Reagan was reforming the tax uh, code there. Um, there was a lot of abuse in the private activity bond space. Initially, they were going to try and get rid of it, root and stem. Uh, our founding members 
that were largely state, the statewide finance authorities like the Illinois Finance Authority. They came together and they were like, yes, this is being abused. We should not be building McDonald's or golf courses with private activity bonds, uh, but they're still a useful tool for financing, uh, providing affordable access to capital for uh, public works projects. And so instead of getting rid of them, they put some guardrails on them. Um, and so that this council, this group of various finance authorities came together uh, and they, they formed this nonprofit and it's been ex in existence ever since. That was our, our, our bread and butter for a long time, but we've since expanded that, uh, which brings me to your question around CDFIs. CDFA is a trade association for finance authorities. CDFIs are a type of finance authority, development finance authority, but with a specific mission, they're all mission driven and they essentially provide financing to communities that traditionally don't have access to traditional financing products, loans, tax credits, things like that. And so they, first of all, are certified by the U.S. Treasury, and they exist in specific areas to help serve underserved communities that have had trouble accessing capital. Um, and so they, they work to provide financial services and products to communities uh, that more risk-averse institutions may not typically lend to. Um, and so, okay, your credit score isn't at this threshold, you're just rejected out of hand. Well, CDFIs think that there's more to a person than a credit score, and that's not to speak negatively about traditional lenders, it's just they have a portfolio and people that they report to that want to see the numbers where they are. Um, CDFIs, on the other hand, uh, try to reach out and, and make products that fit the community that they're working in to provide people uh, that need access to capital with the money they need on the terms that they can afford. But they, they manage over $200 billion of assets in, in the country. Um, and it, it, it's a really great avenue for communities uh, to have more trusted lenders. You know, there's there's a lot of institutional hangover. People don't trust big banks for obvious reasons. And so these are more community-driven. People have a more a more established stake in, in the existence of, of these institutions as they help their community uh, redevelop or rebuild or what have you. And then in terms of CDFA, we have, uh, as I said, we're a trade association with uh, paying members, um, and we have a lot of CDFIs that are members. I can't tell you the number, but CDFA has about 600 paying dues members, and we work closely with CDFIs. Um, just to name a couple right now off the top of my head, uh, we have a learning series with a CDFI, national CDFI called Lindustry. And if, uh, if your listeners want to tune in, you can go to cdfa.net and upcoming events. Uh, and the learning series is called the Equitable Lending Learning Series. You know, it, it's a learning series that provides instruction uh, and, and education around how small business lenders uh, can establish loan fund policies, lending processes, and uh, practices that help further remove barriers to access to capital. We've had a couple of those events already. I think there's two or three more this year that have been really successful. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. Uh, and then another CDFI that CDFA works closely with is the Raza Development Fund, um, which is a Latino-led and focused CDFI. Um, and it's they, they are the premier lender uh, to Latino and low-income serving uh, organizations. And uh, we have a 
outstanding contract with them uh, to provide training and networking uh, around um, minority housing development. We have a fellowship with them. We're, we're really excited uh, about the stuff that we're working on with Raza as well. But um, that's just a couple of the CDFIs off the top of my head here. The rest of our members are just as concerned with providing access to capital for all communities. It's not uh, an exclusive group of people. They all want to see their local, regional, and state communities succeed and open opportunities for small businesses, uh, community development, infrastructure. They want it all to go um, to communities that need it the most uh, so that they can have nice things. Um, and so while they may not be CDFI certified, their goals are the same. They want to provide access to capital to the people that need it. So first and foremost, uh, a shout out to La Raza and a former student of ours, uh, Paulina Ugalde Olson, who's been with them, I think, for about a year and change now. So good organization and uh, always good to see our, our students land in those kinds of roles. You mentioned, Mitchell, the uh, private activity bonds, which I'm sure for some of our listeners are familiar. And of course, for those who aren't, these are you know, otherwise traditional tax exempt municipal bonds that are used for, for private purposes. Like, as you mentioned, everything from economic development projects around expanding the capacity of manufacturing operations to building parking ramps to all sorts of things, all in the name of economic development and job creation. And as was mentioned, there were a lot of abuse of that back in the day, big driving force behind the creation of the Tax Reform Act of 1986 for, for those who, none of us were in the market then, but we certainly hear a lot about it from folks who, who were around then. To say the least. It, 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 yeah, it was clearly a, a defining moment in, in public finance, state and local public finance as we know it today. How do CDFIs that you work with interact at all with the tax-exempt muni space? Are they able to use municipal bonds to finance the kinds of projects that we're talking about here? Are they leveraging or partnering with with other kinds of organizations? Just broadly speaking, is that uh, a world that CDFIs are playing in? I think so. You know, they're indirect and direct lenders. And so I know that, you know, the, the big question on everyone's mind when it comes to community development, um, especially on more expensive projects, is how are we going to fund it and pay for it? And so bringing in these different types of lenders to help build a capital stack or at least provide leverage or a letter of credit or you know other sorts of services to help bolster a project's viability I, that's to my knowledge how cdfis are interacting with these projects obviously each project is different uh, and and can be tailored to the time and space that it's needed as well as the the amount of capital, but it, they're definitely in the room uh, as these things are being worked out and considered. And uh, as as everyone knows, you know, you read the local paper, watch the local news. Uh, so much of this is local, and community development uh, institutions like this are absolutely whether or not they're actually putting up money are going to be involved in these conversations because. They do have that network of people who care greatly about how local resources and tax funds are being used. Um, and so there's a collaboration there, whether uh, it's it's monetary or not. Seems to me that CDFIs, like, even if they don't play a direct financial role, they do play that role of, of trust builder. 
Is is that fair to say? Yeah, there. I mean, you you reference Raza Industry. Other ones that we work with, a large component of their business model is community outreach, mm. repairing decades, generations of bad blood uh, or some some negative connotation with with a larger banks. This is a vital vital role that CDFIs are playing in their communities all over the country. Anything in particular uh, in regards to that with with affordable housing crisis? I mean, I know development agencies of all kinds play a critical role there, but is there uh, any new conversations around the the role that agencies can play there and institutions? Admittedly, I'm not too well-versed in the conversations that these uh, finance authorities are having internally. Um, I can say that there's a bill in Congress that was introduced in the House and the Senate that has bipartisan backing, a large pool of co-sponsorship on both in both chambers uh, around the affordable housing tax credit space. But it's expansive, and if it gets enacted, would really help build and expand the capacity for more affordable housing uh, across the country. CDFA has several housing authorities as members that they're excited by the prospect. Um, there's some little little changes in there around the private activity bond space. I'm sure your listeners will know about private activity bond volume cap. Uh, allocations nationwide have been hamstrung in certain areas, California, Washington. So much of their volume cap has been eaten up by affordable housing and has kind of pushed out other viable projects just because they need affordable housing. There's just no way around it. And if you have the choice between manufacturing facility issuance of, of $10 million or using that to help fund an affordable housing project, you're going to go with the affordable housing project because people need places to live. Um, and so there, there are some slight tweaks in the IRS code in that bill that we're excited about. And we are in communication with those offices. The lead sponsor is also the lead sponsor of CDFA's legislative bill that's in the House of Representatives right now. Um, And so we are in full support of that reform because it will provide, I think they estimated it, a few million additional affordable housing units over the next few years. Um, And so anything that can maximize the impact of the affordable housing tax credit alongside private activity bonds that also frees up volume cap space for other projects in all the states, uh, that's that's a win-win for CDFA and its members. So speaking of uh, legislative pushes and cool acronyms, uh, CDA has been talking. I'm sorry, CDFA, I should say, has been talking a lot lately about uh, Mamba, uh, which is easily one of the coolest acronyms for a piece of legislation. I think that we've heard in a long time. So what would Mamba do, and and how does uh, CDFA see it as advancing their mission? MAMBA is short for the Modernizing Agricultural and Manufacturing Bonds Act. And this specifically uh, would reform two types of private activity bonds. First of all, it would reform manufacturing bonds around small issue uh, industrial development bonds. The IDBs is what they're referred to in shorthand, another acronym for the listeners. And basically these rules were established in 1986 and they've been static ever since. You can imagine that $10 million in 1986 was a significant chunk of change, but it has less than 25% of the buying power it does now. The price of building manufacturing facilities has only gone up 
Um, and then with all the general inflation around construction materials, labor, et cetera, et cetera, it's just not a viable tool that people are using. I mean, they still get used, don't get me wrong, but several, several of CDFA's most prominent founding members I've talked to on the phone and they haven't issued a, an IDB in over five years, maybe even 10. And they used to do hundreds of millions of dollars of these every other year. You know, they they were writing them and helping fund manufacturing facilities, build them out, refit, uh, refit them, expand them. And now it's just not a tool that's used because it costs much more uh, in every capacity and it it's not been a tool that's that's very useful um combine that with the interest rate market that took off in the uh you know essentially after the great recession and the cost of capital from just a traditional loan was the same or less than a bond issuance and a, a heck of a lot easier to get a hold of um and so you know, these things kind of combined forces and, and have kept the IDB market pretty low. Now, the actual bill has three main reforms in uh, the IRS code to improve the tool. First of all, it increases the issuance amount, the maximum issuance amount to $30 million from $10 million. So it's a threefold increase and you know, our internal studies and, and sort of anecdotally from our members, they're looking at 20 to $40 million is the typical cost of these sorts of projects. Um, and so putting at $30 million is going to keep, keep up with the inflation that's happened in the last 40 years, essentially. Um, and we've pegged that number to inflation. It's not been adjusted for inflation once since 1986. And so we're going to do that. So uh, it remains a viable tool and keeps pace with inflation. Uh, and so it just remains uh, at that level from here on out. Um, additionally, there are some rules in the IRS code that constrain what these issuances can be used for. Um, and so we want to reform those, uh, those definitions and expand what can be used because the process of manufacturing, in addition to the cost of it, have also changed dramatically in 40 years. Um, and so we want to encompass everything that people are using or, or are manufacturing um, to be under that banner. And then finally, the actual uh, facilities themselves, we want to expand what is considered a viable space for these. Instead of just straight manufacturing, we want the definition to include facilities that, um, you know, you want a cafeteria, you want a locker room, you want facilities that make the quality of life of your workers better, you should be able to use those. And so uh, use those bond issuances for those purposes because it's all generally tied to manufacturing, whether or not it's the actual process. And so those are the three main reforms that we have uh, tied to Mamba for manufacturing. We also have some agricultural components in there. Um, right now, it, the, the, it's the first time farmer bond, also known as Aggie bonds, um, and those are private activity bonds for first time farmers. Um, right now, that issuance limit has been pegged to inflation since the 80s, but the cost of acquiring land, uh, farmland has also 
gone up significantly. And even with inflation, it's not keeping pace with the cost of the actual land purchase. So 2023, the max issuance for first-time farmer bond is $616,000, which is not going to buy too much farmland uh, or help you fund the buildings and equipment that you need to have a functioning and successful farm. So we increased that number to a million and then also kept it tied to inflation. At the risk of oversimplifying, it sounds like at some level, what, what you're doing here is revisiting many of the issues that led to the Tax Reform Act of 86, many of those sort of abuses that we were talking about and saying, you know, here we are almost 40 years later, we've learned some lessons, we can do this again, do it the right way and not open up the door to some of the abuses that led to the clapback of this, you know, roughly 40 years ago. Is that fair to, to say or is that oversimplifying it too much? I, I think you're absolutely right. CDFA is of the mind that there are a lot of development finance tools out there that have been in existence for decades, if not centuries. You know, bonds were created in the 1800s, mid-1800s with railroads. Um, and that was the first reform around public financing. You know, bonds were created because there was abuse in the system. And so now we want to reform these, maybe not because they're being abused, but because they're being underutilized. So Mitchell, we've, uh, we talk all the time on the public money pod about the kind of intersection of state and local public finance and climate adaptation and mitigation. And I know that uh, CDFA has been in this space as well. We've talked a little bit about your greenhouse gas reduction initiative and some other activity you have in this space. Tell us a little bit more about that initiative and what that might mean for state and local public finance. Yeah, we're, uh, well, obviously we're excited about Mamba, but we're very excited about the, the CDFA Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund Coalition. As your listeners know, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund was established in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that passed out of Congress in August of last year. It created a $27 billion fund to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and obviously there are a lot of technicalities on what what is included and what is a qualified project under that. Um, but needless to say, it's a, a historic investment in clean energy technology and greenhouse gas reduction technology. CDFA has been watching it since it passed out of Congress in August. And the EPA, is this is a, a first of its kind. They've been given a monumental task to stand up a $27 billion grant fund. I don't envy them because the amount of feedback that they got, that they solicited, they, they had many hearing sessions to solicit, you know, feedback, how they, how people thought it should be distributed, uh, where it should be distributed. CDFIs were a vital part of that conversation. Um, I know I sat in on one where I was the lone non-CDFI uh, member on the call. And so you know, they were, they were a vital part of it and they are going to be a vital part of it because so much of where the money's going to go is going to be distributed by community lenders and we'll be applying for the clean communities investment accelerator competition, which is one of the three competitions that the EPA has laid out that the GGRF will be a part of. They just released the notice of funding for one of the programs called the solar for all program. Uh, it's a $7 billion fund that they anticipate making around 60 awards, which is shorthand for, this is for state or state finance authorities. Um, and in the off chance that a state finance authority doesn't apply for it, 
in the statute, they allow development finance authorities regionally to come together and apply for it. I'd have to check the language on that. Regardless, the intent of that is clearly for state and then to turn around and give to local finance authorities, more traditional public finance uh, agencies um, from, from across the country and territories. CDFA is looking at that the CCIA that will be a $6 billion pot of money that the EPA estimates giving out to two to seven nonprofit hubs across the country uh, that will then grant sub awards uh, of up to $5 million to community lenders. And those can be public, quasi-public. You know, they're, we're still waiting on the notice of funding, so they'll have further instructions on who's a qualified lender uh, and who could be a qualified sub-awardee. Um, but the intent of the CCIA uh, is to try and ramp up and build the capacity for a lot of community lenders that may not have much experience or no experience in the green energy, green bank finance space. Um, so maybe they lack the human capacity, the human capital uh, to stand it up because they're a small DFA of seven people and they're just focused on the bread and butter uh, bedrock foundational tools of public finance. And they don't have the capacity to go after a $5 million grant from the EPA to set up a, a solar revolving loan fund or something that helps with geothermal installations on, on residential homes, uh, energy refits of, of apartment complexes, things of that nature. And so the CCIA is, is geared specifically towards that to help these community lenders get seed funding for those sorts of projects. And obviously the EPA will have detailed guidance on what is a qualified project. And then finally, uh, the biggest pot of money is $14 billion, and that's the National Clean Investment Fund. And that is going to go to two to three nonprofit hubs. And we we kind of have an idea of who it will go towards. One of the big players in the space is Opportunity Finance Network, which is a, a, the largest or collection of CDFIs in the country. So they, this, again, CDFIs are going to have a massive role in this in one way or another. Yeah, the, the IRA, I mean, first you had the, the in, infrastructure, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, but then followed by a year later by the IRA, which contains all, I mean, that's the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. That's a lot of these other funds that you've mentioned. Ta new tax credits. I mean, there's public finance wise, a lot to parse through there. Absolutely. So, I mean, is yeah, what, what kind of advice do you have? CDFA was also involved with the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, there's a uh, reauthorization of an Obama-era small business development program called the State Small Business Credit Initiative that is administered by the 50 states, the territories, and then in this iteration, tribal governments are also getting a large uh, capital program seating. Um, and so we have been involved in that space for a, over a decade, and we helped the uh, Biden uh, transition team uh, come up with that reauthorization and they, they gave it a $10 billion author reauthorization amount as opposed to $1.5 billion in the first time around. So states are also, again, they, they all had to send in ap applications and then go through a rigorous review process. And now they're all getting the money. But is, in terms of advice on NOFO FOMO, 
I think my boss would be upset if I didn't say that you should register uh, at cdfa.net and register for the newsletters that go out. Um, I help uh, do headlines and updates for the weekly newsletter, the Development Finance Review Weekly. Um, I also manage a newsletter for legislative and federal news, which includes announcements of funding. Uh, we don't put the actual NOFOs in there, but the uh, federal departments often release do a press release at the same time to announce that this funding is available. And if you're interested, go to grants.gov. I put those in there every month and it goes out once a month. And then the SSBCI uh, update newsletter also features the latest success stories. We try to highlight the really incredible work that states are doing, uh, whether it's just a traditional grant uh, or a loan to small businesses, startups. Uh, they're also doing a lot of venture capital this round, which is an exciting component that I've seen that it's the first time such and such states ever had a program like this. So Mitchell, when you look at the legislative agenda for the next weeks and months, uh, what comes to mind? What are you going to be working on? Yeah, obviously the the debt ceiling was pretty contentious um, and remains so. Uh, you know, now it's there's still talk of a shutdown. Um, so CDFA's um, paying attention to that. Despite that, we're cautious, cautiously optimistic because the sort of human capital that CDFIs, banking institutions, public uh, municipal finance authorities are facing, that's the same thing in Congress. And in addition to their staff being highly mobile and moving around and changing, the, the legislature or the legislators are also new. There's a, there are a lot of new faces in Congress. Um, and again, that sort of institutional hang up about a certain program may not be there under this new person. And so it's a challenge because there is a large educational component to that sort of thing. Um, we, ha we have congressional meetings on the Hill about once a quarter where we go in, we talk about these, these tools. You know, obviously right now it's private activity bonds, um, but there are other things that we've broached as potential solutions to uh, gaps in capital around like the disaster recovery. Opportunity zones are going to be a hot topic of discussion. A new staffer who maybe their portfolio on a different team was about farming. Maybe they don't know anything about opportunity zones. Or maybe they don't know anything about industrial development bonds. And so a large portion of what we do uh, with the help of our lobbyists and and our members uh, and our fellow nonprofit trade associations in the same space, they are all up there talking to congressional staff and, and legislators about these tools and why we think it's important and why they need to be updated. And yes, it's challenging. Yes, sometimes, oftentimes, the politicking gets in the way of, of progress, but every now and then you get a breakthrough and something happens and you know, good things come to fruition. So that's uh, that's our outlook legislatively. Maybe it's because I'm a year in, I'm still green. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that having a positive outlook on how you can uh, develop these sorts of relationships and, and affect change is more productive than just being down about it all the time and saying nothing good will ever happen. Well, thanks again to Mitchell Smith, Director of Government and External Affairs at the Council of Development Finance Agencies for 
taking the time today to share uh, lots of wisdom, lots of acronyms, lots of great insights into uh, this very interesting and important corner of state and local finance. We, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate y'all having me on. Uh, it, was a, it was a real pleasure to talk about uh, the various happenings in the development finance world. Well, thanks again to Michelle Smith for joining us. I really uh, appreciate, I learned a lot actually in what he was talking about, particularly when he was talking about the greenhouse gas fund. I, um, I understand a lot more now about how that works. Um, and I guess kind of tipping off of, of, of that conversation, the ripped from the headlines piece I wanted to bring up today is a piece that came out uh, the other week in science news. And it's a, it's about a study that was done the, the headline says new nationwide modeling points to widespread racial disparities in urban heat stress. And uh, this study used a combo of satellite data and modeling to look at temperatures and humidity people might feel in urban areas. And, and it, um, and it pinpoints who's most vulnerable to heat stress. And so um, let me just kind of do the headline stuff first, which is that uh, the paper found that um, the average black resident is exposed to air that is warmer by, it says 0.28 degrees Celsius, so you know, close to a degree Fahrenheit. Um, that's that that's a degree Fahrenheit warmer um, relative to the city average. And, uh, in, and in contrast, the average white urban resident lives where air temperature is cooler by about that much, um, close to that same amount. Um, so the work was published in the journal One Earth, and it highlights shortcomings in the in the typical approach scientists usually take in estimating her urban heat stress, uh, which frequently relies on satellite data. It, the story says that the conventional-based satellite method can overestimate disparities, according to the new work. As the world warms, the findings stand to inform urban heat response plans put forward by local governments who seek to help vulnerable groups. And quick definition of heat stress, that's when, um, <clears throat> so obviously your your body has to operate within a pretty narrow temperature range. Um, when your core body temperature is raises just six or seven degrees, that's really, really bad. Um, and so uh, the cooling power of sweating helps. Um, but when heat and humidity are omnipresent and difficult to escape, the body struggles to adapt. And so black residents in urban areas are more vulnerable to this by a lot uh, that to, to this stress than, than white residents. Um, and just uh, one more quick point that the article makes about the study is that it shows that roughly 87.5% of the city, cities studied show that black population live in parts of the city with higher land surface temperatures, warmer air, and greater uh, heat stress. Um, and this is, and typically residents in poor neighborhoods often faced the, the greatest heat stress. And the, the, the authors studied major US cities, New York, LA, Chicago, all, all the, a lot of the biggies. And, and so that's kind of the, the big takeaway here. And so to me, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up is that this really is a really good data point on, on why we have such health, such um, wide health disparities between, um, between uh, black residents and white residents in, in any urban area. And, but then nationwide, it speaks to the kind of, kind of the underlying uh, disparities in outcomes based on race and and um and income that we have and at least in urban areas the the 
big kind of background of this is that it there's, there's a pretty direct relationship between uh, these areas of heat stress and areas that were uh were, were redlined and and those and it shows kind of the the horrible legacy that that continues to have on residents in cities today and how that's connected to health and so you know bringing it back to the to the conversation we just had it it shows why it's um so important to direct investments to these areas but it also shows you know kind of the the challenges that major financial institutions kind of place in in areas like this and it's queuing back to what we were talking about in terms of investment um distressed neighborhoods um are typically not neighborhoods that large banks see as um as um as low enough risk to invest in um which is why we need these institutions like CDFIs and other agencies to to do that because uh, the these neighbors have neighborhoods have historically been underinvested in for all of these public policy reasons and it has so many other implications and so Justin I, I was curious are there any other kind of um, observations you had uh, and especially in terms of of your work or uh, your own experiences. Yeah, it's such a challenging set of issues. And the thing that that always strikes me when you see these kinds of data, which there's just there's so much more of these days. And I think for so many people, it's it's really compelling because I think it squares with their with their day to day lived experience. It, it's certain parts of big cities just feel hotter on particularly in in on warmer summer days, et cetera. And and the opposite, too. Right. It, during cold spells, during serious stormwater events. I mean, all those sort of fundamental city infrastructure kinds of questions really come front and center when when it's very clear that the infrastructure isn't up to the task for whatever set of reasons. It's interesting, though, too, how as as like sophisticated as this is, we're talking about satellite modeling, you know, using all of these new data, trying to bring things down to the micro level, the the sort of census track or even block level. That's all really important to help really understand the the sort of tapestry of this very sophisticated data science that goes into producing those kinds of estimates. In so many ways, the response to it really is fundamental, old school blocking and tackling when it comes to capital budgeting, stuff that we don't often think about, right? I think a lot of these, a lot of this work on heat and heat stress points back to things like tree canopy, sidewalks that are correctly permeable, again, having effective stormwater infrastructure, things that aren't necessarily easy or simple, but are are definitely uh, kinds of the kinds of investments that we know how to make, the kinds of infrastructure that we know how to design. We're not asking to build solar panels or or get into lines of business, so to speak, that city governments are completely unfamiliar with. It's really kind of going back to basics in some ways. And I think that's something that pretty much everyone can agree can, can always be done better. Maybe there's new financing sources. Maybe there's different ways of, of thinking about getting community input into where and, and when and how those sorts of investments are made. But a lot of these you know, super sophisticated studies kind of point back to good old fashioned public finance. And I think that's an encouraging message for all of us in the world of state and local public money to be thinking about. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, 
MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Podcast.